The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry, and you've tuned into The Glenn Show. Uh, I'm with John Mearsheimer, who's professor of political science at the University of Chicago and a very distinguished student of uh, politics and foreign policy. And uh, we're here to talk about the issue of the day, which is the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Thanks, John. Thanks so much. Glad to be here, Glenn. Okay. Why not start with the question, was Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine a rational act? I think that kind of touches uh, uh, both bases in terms of uh, the conflict and also your uh, more general reflections on rationality of state action. Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom is that it was an unprovoked and irrational move on Putin's part, that he was bent on creating a greater Russia. He was an imperialist at heart. Really what he wanted to do here was conquer Ukraine, incorporate it into Russia, and then he would march on and try and conquer other countries. And I believe a lot of people think that this uh, unprovoked attack was irrational because it makes no sense to try and create an empire in the modern world. But that story, which is certainly the conventional wisdom, uh, has no evidence to support it. There's no evidence that he was bent on conquering Ukraine and incorporating it into uh, a greater Russia. There's no evidence that he had imperialist tendencies. In fact, what caused this war was NATO expansion. Be more specific. The West, and here we're talking mainly about Uncle Sam, was interested in creating uh, a Western bulwark on Russia's border by bringing Ukraine into NATO, into the EU, and then fostering a color revolution in Ukraine, which would turn it into a pro-Western liberal democracy. So the idea here was that we could, we in the West, could move right up to Russia's border and make Ukraine part of the West. The Russians made it unequivocally clear from 2008 when we first broached this scheme, this was categorically unacceptable. They said this is an existential threat. It was the brightest of all red lines for the Russians. And of course, the United States ignored Russian concerns and continued to push Uh, for NATO expansion and for EU expansion. But NATO expansion here is the key. And the end result is that the Russians launched a preventive war in February of 2022. Uh, And again, it was provoked uh, by NATO expansion, by our efforts to make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's borders. And I would argue it was a rational decision. One could agree with what Putin did or disagree with what he did, but it was a rational decision. And from his point of view and from the point of view of his lieutenants, 
made eminently good sense. He's not a bad guy. He he's not the reincarnation of uh, some kind of uh, awful uh, you know villain. Uh, th- this is not a moral crusade. Uh, there's not a clear black and white line here with uh, Ukrainian sovereignty being on the good side of that. Um, really, the United States is responsible at the end of the day for this uh, disaster. That's my argument, that the United States and its European allies are principally responsible. The fact is, Glenn, if we had not expanded NATO uh, or tried to expand NATO into Ukraine, uh, Ukraine would in all likelihood be intact today. Uh, The Russians would not have taken Crimea in 2014, and they would now uh, not be in the process of wrecking Ukraine and... uh, conquering territory and incorporating it into Russia. Uh, We are principally responsible. If you look at the diplomatic record, it's quite clear that Putin did everything he could to avoid this war. He was deeply interested in working out a negotiated settlement. He did not want to conquer Ukraine, but he felt that we were in the process of turning Ukraine into a de facto member of NATO. And again, this is categorically unacceptable. And he reached the end of his rope uh, when all of the diplomatic approaches that he tried failed and he launched a war. I'll just add here, it's quite amazing that Americans don't understand Putin's thinking. We here in the United States have what's called the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine says that no distant great power is allowed to move military forces into the Western Hemisphere. For us, the Western Hemisphere is our backyard. And the idea that a distant great power can move military forces in here is unacceptable. You and I are old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. The idea of the Soviets putting nuclear-armed missiles in Cuba was just unacceptable to us. And then later, when they talked about creating a naval base at Cienfuegos in Cuba, we told them in no uncertain terms that that was unacceptable. We would never tolerate that. Uh, So what you have in the Russian case is a similar situation. The Russians don't want Ukraine, which is right on their border and is an important piece of real estate from a security perspective, becoming part of a military alliance. It was a mortal foe of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Why Americans don't understand this basic logic escapes me. Okay, so, you know, this is not my field, but I'm just going to venture this kind of devil's advocate observation. So where is the moral equivalence justified between who gets to define who has a sphere of influence? Anybody? Anybody with an army? Uh, or are there spheres of influences that are more and less kind of historically, uh, uh, morally, whatever? So we're the West, we're, we're the United States of America. We're not the, uh, uh, I don't even know what the right adjective here, uh, but it's certainly not a liberal democracy. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Well, there's no question that, Uh, In the United States, there's a widespread feeling that we're the good guys and anybody else who opposes us is the bad guys. And we tend to think in very moralistic terms. Uh, And there is a widespread feeling uh, 
that what the Russians did was illegal or unjust. Uh, I'll address that issue in a minute. But before I get there, I want to focus on your point about spheres of influence. The fact of the matter is that if you're a small power like Ukraine and you live next door to a gorilla like Russia, you're a small power like Cuba, and you live next door to a gorilla like the United States, you have to be very careful. You have to understand that these gorillas are extremely powerful. They tend to worry greatly about their security. And if you do something that threatens their security, they're going to try to crush you. That's just the way the international system works. You can like it or you can dislike it. But if you're a small power, in my humble opinion, it's imperative to be aware of how dangerous it is to deal with gorillas. And in the case of Cuba, they thought they could invite the Soviets into the Western Hemisphere and get away with it. As you and I both know, we still have sanctions on Cuba left over from those days in the early 60s when we were enraged by what they did with the Soviets. Yeah. We just found that categorically unacceptable. Well, the Russians are the same way. They care greatly about their backyard, and they have no intention of letting countries like Ukraine or Georgia become part of NATO. This is just the way the world works. The Ukrainians and the Americans and their European allies ignored this basic logic and thought they could shove NATO expansion down the Russians' throat. What is the end result of this? The end result of this is that Ukraine is being destroyed. It's being turned into a dysfunctional rump state. My basic understanding of international politics, and I think it's commonsensical, is you don't want to antagonize Russia if you're Ukraine, because the end result is not going to be a happy one. That's well, you know, I, I took a look at your book with Rosado, uh, How States Think. Uh, and as I understand it, your, your, your notion of states' actions are rational if, if they are arrived at through a deliberative process uh, in the service of some coherent theory of the case. You know, you, you have a model of how the world is working or how this uh, conflict is, whatever, what your interests are, and, and you have a process that arises, and that, that would be rationality. And so I'm moved to ask, given what you describe as an unmitigated disaster that's been precipitated by the United States and NATO were our actions rational, not Putin, but our own. Well, as you know, what Sebastian Rosado and I argue in the book is that you have to have sort of a credible theory of victory if you're going to push the Russians the way we did. As I said before, the Russians were trying to get off the hook. They wanted to put an end to NATO expansion uh, into Ukraine diplomatically. And when that failed, uh, they launched a war. Now, we were not willing to seriously engage them diplomatically, I believe, because we thought that if a war broke out, we would defeat the Russians. Now, why did we think that? First of all, it's very important to understand that we had armed and trained huge numbers of Ukrainian forces. And the reason that the Ukrainians did so well in the initial fighting with the Russians 
was because we had trained them and armed them so well. So we believed that the Ukrainians would hold their own on the battlefield, number one. And number two, and this is most important, we believed that economic sanctions would bring the Russians to their knees. We believed that we were employing uh, the most fearsome economic sanctions in the history of the world. The Russians would not be able to handle those sanctions. Their economy would be greatly weakened. They would be having trouble with the Ukrainians on the battlefield. They would go to the negotiating table and we would end up with a settlement that humiliated them and in effect knocked them out of the ranks of the great powers. If we hadn't thought we could beat the Russians in this war, we would not have allowed it to happen, or we at least would have gone to greater lengths to prevent it. And once it started, we would have tried to shut it down. In fact, once it started and it looked like it might be shut down, we pushed the Ukrainians to end the negotiations because we wanted to continue the fight. We thought we could defeat the Russians. And one could argue that that is a plausible theory of victory because many people thought that the sanctions would work. It's clear that they have now not worked. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. At the time, lots of people, and I think even the Russians themselves, thought that sanctions were going to be a huge problem. Uh, so we had this plausible theory of victory, but we miscalculated. And as you well know, we live in an uncertain world, and in an uncertain world, states often miscalculate. Okay, so our actions are, are rational, even if uh, in, mistaken. What about the deliberative process? I mean, uh, I detect a, a kind of a virtue signaling dimension, and in a, in a, when I, I turn on the news on Sunday and I listen to the spokesman uh, from both parties talking about this thing, um, they're they're beating their chest, and they're you know, I don't want to name names because you know all of them, and they're all saying the same thing. Uh, is our deliberative process uh, coherent and, and whatnot? Are, are we being stampeded uh, uh, into uh, something as a country that uh, only uh, uh, the voices in the wilderness are willing to object to? Wouldn't you ruin your political career if you were trying to run for president by uh, uh, forth, forcefully opposing this, uh, this uh, proxy war? Even if you use the term proxy war, wouldn't you you know, define yourself as a fringe uh, commentator on uh, American uh, foreign policy? I think there's no question that if you are in the foreign policy establishment uh, and or you're in the mainstream media, uh, you have to support the conventional wisdom about this war. You, in effect, have to be a virtue signaler to use your rhetoric. Uh, you have to say that Putin is the bad guy, that this was an unprovoked attack. Uh, you have to support the Ukrainians to the hilt. And you have to make the argument that the Ukrainians can win this war. Uh, we used to argue that you could win it quickly. I think it's now quite clear that's not going to happen. But you have to argue that we should hang in there. We should continue to support the Ukrainians. And there is no reason that they can't triumph in the end. And again, this is a case of good versus evil. And we are the good guys. And there is a moral imperative here. 
to defeat uh, Vladimir Putin, who in the minds of many people is the equivalent of Adolf Hitler. And uh, if we don't stop him in Ukraine, uh, he'll go on into the Baltic states or on into Poland. Uh, he has a voracious appetite for conquest. We've seen this before. And anybody who disagrees with this has been infected by the Munich analogy, right? Uh, we want to appease uh, Putin, and he's unappeasable. This, this is the conventional wisdom. But it, it's, in my opinion, wrongheaded and Thinking this way has got us, and more importantly, the Ukrainians, into a well of a lot of trouble. Clint, can I return to the issue of uh, just war theory and how this applies to this particular case? Sure. Uh, A lot of people argue that uh, this was this invasion in on February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two. Uh, violated just war theory, or it violated international law. Uh, I think that's correct. Uh, I think that just war theory rules out preventive war. You can fight wars for self-defense, or if the other side is about to attack you, attack you, you can preempt. You can strike first before the other side strikes you. But a preventive war is unacceptable according to just war theory. And this was a preventive war. So it does not accord, in my opinion, with just war theory. Furthermore, I think preventive wars are impermissible from the perspective of international law. Uh, It is possible that you could get a UN Security Council resolution that allowed you to launch a preventive war or something that looked like a preventive war, in which case that would be legal because it was sanctioned by the UN. But I think the war technically was illegal and I think it was unjust. But the point I would make to you and to others, of course, is that if you're a state and you are faced with what you think is an existential threat. And there's no question that the Russians saw Ukraine and NATO as an existential threat. They made that very clear. If you see an existential threat and you launch a war to eliminate that mortal threat, no leader nor his people are going to consider that to be unjust. My argument is that almost every leader on the planet would consider a war against an existential threat or a war designed to eliminate an existential threat as just from that state's point of view. So my bottom line here is from the perspective of just war theory and international law, I think the war was unjust. Uh, no question. But if you move beyond just war theory and you apply a more commonsensical definition to what a just war is, I think one could argue that from the Russian perspective, this was a just war. I see a husband who assaults the, his wife's lover has definitely broken the law. On the other hand, who can blame him? 
yes, you you get into those sorts of arguments, right? Uh, I mean, if, if does anybody seriously believe that if the United States felt that it faced an existential threat, uh, that it was not allowed to use military force to eliminate that threat? Let's just go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, there was a big debate about what exactly to do uh, when we discovered the missiles in Cuba. And there were two choices here. Uh, one was to use military force to attack Cuba and to eliminate the missiles. The other was to try to coerce the Russians or the Soviets into pulling the missiles out of Cuba. This is what we did with a blockade. But we didn't go to war in that case. There were lots of people in the decision-making circle who wanted to use military force. This would have been a violation of uh, just war theory because we would have been launching a preventive war against Cuba. We certainly would have done it. And if Kennedy had not been successful at using coercion to get Khrushchev to agree to take those missiles out, he would have surely used military force. And I believe almost every American would have thought that that was just, that we had a right to eliminate this existential threat to the United States in 1962. So it's this basic logic that, um, that I think one wants to keep in mind when thinking about what the Russians did. Yes, it may be a violation of just war theory or international law, but again, from a commonsensical point of view, it makes eminently good sense if you're the Russians and you think you're facing an existential threat to try to eliminate it. Are you worried about escalation? I am worried about escalation. Um, I mean, in my opinion, it can take two forms. Um, the one that scared me the most was one where the Russians were losing. Uh, let's say that the American plan to bring the Russians to their knees was working. Had actually worked out. <laughs> yeah, let's assume they worked out. Uh, I believe the Russians would have used nuclear weapons, or to put it in more qualified terms, it's highly likely that the Russians would have used nuclear weapons. Uh, you want to remember, Glenn, that if the Russians were to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine when they were losing, they would not be using nuclear weapons against the West, specifically against the United States. They would be using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians have no nuclear weapons of their own. So they would not be able to retaliate with nuclear weapons. And we have made it clear, uh, Macron has been especially outspoken on this, that we would not, we the West, would not use nuclear weapons in response to Russian use inside of Ukraine. Well, given that calculus, you can see where the Russians would be seriously tempted to use nuclear weapons to try to rescue the situation if they were losing, right? So the fact that the Russians are doing much better on the battlefield today, <laughs> ironically, ironically, yes, is uh, minimizes the prospects of, uh, of escalation. But that's one scenario. The other scenario, which is becoming the more likely one, uh, more likely escalation scenario, 
is if Ukraine loses, if the Ukrainian military uh, collapses or the Russians just simply start to overrun them because the Russians have larger numbers of troops and much more artillery and assorted other kinds of equipment, and the Ukrainians are being pushed back, what is the United States going to do? If, in a more extreme case, and a possible case, the Ukrainian military collapses and the Russians are overrunning most of Ukraine, what are we going to do? It's very important to remember how deeply invested we are in this war. Can we really afford to lose? Can NATO afford to lose? Anyway, I raise all of this because I think there will be a serious temptation for us to get directly involved. And given the number of foolish moves that the United States and its allies have made with regard to NATO expansion, I wouldn't be surprised if we got involved. Do I think it's likely? No. But I think it's a serious possibility. So I like to say, I think there's a non-trivial chance that we would get involved if Ukraine is losing in a serious way. And I think at this point in time, that's much more likely than the Russians losing and the Russians turning to nuclear weapons. Well, I was going to ask you about that. You're scaring the hell out of me, by the way. I was going to ask you because I read your Blitzkrieg uh, uh, essay about... uh, you know, what the consequences of this uh, counteroffensive that the uh, Ukrainians were mounting and uh, what what the war of attrition betting odds are, uh, given the, the underlying fundamentals about the differences in the in the uh, arraignment of forces uh, between the conflicting parties. Yeah, I mean, the counteroffensive, which was launched on 4 June of this year, was a blitzkrieg. It was a clever strategy. It was designed to deliver a rather quick hammer blow to the Russian military and force them to the negotiating table where we would, in theory, get uh, a very good agreement, we meaning the West and the United States. The counteroffensive has clearly failed. It's actually been a disaster. What that means is that we're now engaged in a war of attrition. Uh, which was the case before the counteroffensive was launched. It's important to understand that we launched the counteroffensive, or the Ukrainians launched the counteroffensive, to get out of the war of attrition. Because I think the Ukrainians and the Americans understood that if it was a war of attrition, the Ukrainians could not win. Uh, but we're back into a war of attrition. So the $64,000 question is, who wins a war of attrition? And the answer is the Russians. And you say to yourself, why is that the case? Well, what matters the most in a war of attrition is the relative population size of the combatants, because how big your population is determines how many soldiers you can produce. And second, the uh, balance of artillery, how much artillery each side has, because in a war of attrition, As we used to say when I was a cadet at West Point, what really matters is artillery. It is the king of battle, okay? Well, if you look at the population figures, the Russians have five people for every one Ukrainian. The Russians have a five-to-one advantage in population. 
That means they can produce five soldiers for every one soldier that Ukraine can produce. That is terrible news for the Ukrainians in a war of attrition. In terms of artillery, the conventional wisdom is almost everybody agrees on this, including people in the West and in Ukraine, that the Russians have somewhere between a five to one and a 10 to one advantage in artillery. And moreover, that that advantage is likely to grow in the future because the Ukrainians cannot produce much artillery. We don't have much artillery to give them and can't spin up the industrial capacity to produce large amounts of artillery tubes and artillery shells quickly. While on the other hand, the Russians are pumping out artillery tubes and artillery projectiles like crazy. So this advantage, which is somewhere between five to one and 10 to one in artillery, is going to grow with the passage of time. So the point is, when you look at the balance of artillery and you look at the manpower balance, it's hard to see how the Russians don't win. So my argument, Glenn, moving forward is that as this war of attrition goes on, what will happen is the Russians will grind down the Ukrainians. Okay, um, just to shift the gear a little bit here. Uh, Zelensky is the Churchill of our time. Uh, how absurd is that? And why are people saying it? Well, Zelensky uh, took Ukraine into the war. Uh, and uh, it, at first, it looked like Ukraine uh, might win. Uh, and he looked like a hero. He looked like someone who was willing to stand up to the evil Russians and was going to help the West defeat the evil Russians. Uh, and he is obviously a remarkably skilled politician when it comes to dealing with foreign audiences. And he and I say this with admiration, has manipulated the West uh, like nobody I've ever seen. And uh, the end result is that we have forged this quite close, if not very close, relationship with Zelensky. Uh, and up until now, the West and Zelensky have been working hand in hand uh, to defeat the Russians. And uh, this has made him a hero. And lots of people, unsurprisingly, especially on the right, have designated him as uh, the sort of second coming of Winston Churchill. Uh, leaving aside the Winston Churchill analogy, the fact is he made a huge blunder taking his country into this war. He was elected, he was elected on the platform that he was going to improve relations between Russia and Ukraine, that he was going to end the civil war that was taking place in the Donbass between ethnic Ukrainians and the Ukrainian government on one side and ethnic Russian and Russian speakers who were pro-Russian on the other side. This is all inside Ukraine. He was going to end that civil war. It's going to improve relations with Russia. That's why he was elected. In early 2021, he flip-flopped. This is right after Biden comes into the White House. 
And he decides that he's going to make Russia an adversary. And he says that instead of working to come up with some sort of arrangement that makes the Russians happy with regard to the relationship, the security relationship between Ukraine um, and NATO, he's going to push to bring Ukraine into NATO. So after January 2021, which was when Biden comes into the White House, Zelensky and Biden are working hand in hand to play hardball with the Russians on NATO expansion into Ukraine. And the end result is he gets this war. And the end result of that is his country is going to be destroyed. The Russians are going to end up annexing a large chunk of Ukrainian territory. They've already turned it into a dysfunctional rump state, and they will have a deep-seated interest for the foreseeable future in keeping it as a dysfunctional rump state. This is an unmitigated disaster. It's just hard to believe what's happening to Ukraine today. It makes me sick to my stomach to watch this, especially when you recognize that had we not tried to expand NATO into Ukraine, had we not tried to make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's border, in all likelihood, there'd be no war today and Ukraine would be intact. But it was Zelensky, along with leaders in the West, who pushed in the opposite direction. And the end result is, I believe, that Zelensky bears some responsibility, significant responsibility, some significant responsibility for wrecking Ukraine. Let's talk about life insurance. This is really important. If you've got loved ones who depend on you, why leave anything up to chance in a worst case scenario? Life insurance gives your family a safety net that can cover expenses so they won't have to worry about money while getting back on their feet. They won't have to wonder how the mortgage is going to get paid or how the college tuition is going to get paid. I know what I'm talking about here because as a man of a certain age, I am in my eighth decade of life with a spouse who's somewhat younger. I have to worry about how she's going to manage when I'm gone. And I need life insurance. I'm especially concerned because as I begin the phased retirement from my long-term academic position here at Brown University, I realize that I will lose the term life insurance that I have been receiving as a employment benefit, and I'm going to need to find some insurance on my own out in the marketplace. You can believe that I'll be using policy genius when the time comes for me to look for another life insurance policy. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 a year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius knows how valuable your time is. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks. 
to find your lowest price. Policy Genius has licensed award-winning agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. Policy Genius is for parents, caregivers, and anyone else who has people who depend on them. They simplify the process of getting life insurance so you can protect the people you love. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and to buy it. So head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and to see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. I want to ask you about American politics. I mean, is it really just a coincidence that the uh, the Biden uh, uh, graft scandal uh, involves a Ukrainian element, that the Trump impeachment involves a Ukrainian element, that the uh, Putin's puppet uh, 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 epithet uh, resonates because of uh, the presumption that the Russians had uh, somehow uh, compromised Donald Trump when he was president. Uh, are, are these all just unrelated uh, events or is there some structural dynamic uh, that uh, yeah, are we at war? In effect, we are in Ukraine uh, because of uh, deep state machinations that are, you know, uh, the subjects of conspiracy theories, but that might might have something to it anyway. This is a very complicated matter. There's a lot of issues floating around in there. Uh, I think your comments do highlight the extent to which Ukraine has been of central importance uh, for American foreign policy and to some extent for American domestic politics uh, for the past 10 years or so. Uh, you know, just on President Biden, it's very important to understand that when he was uh, vice president, that President Obama assigned him the Ukraine portfolio. So it was Biden, Vice President Biden, who handled the Ukraine issue. And in fact, he worked closely with Victoria Nuland and others uh, to help foment the coup in 2014. Uh, which really got the ball rolling uh, in terms of this crisis, uh, which has now turned into a war. So Joe Biden himself has been deeply involved in Ukrainian matters uh, for a long time. And, and just to add to that, when he became president in January 2021, uh, he actually began to up the ante on bringing Ukraine into NATO. Uh, it's no accident that the crisis in Ukraine, the crisis in Ukraine, which had existed since February 2014, that's when the coup happened. That's when the trouble started, February 2014. Biden comes into the White House in January 2021. It's no accident that 13 months later, 
the war happens, because what's happening over the course of 2021 and early 2022 is that the Biden administration is upping the pressure on the Russians regarding NATO expansion. And this is when the Russians are scrambling to try to work out some sort of diplomatic solution so that it doesn't end up in a war. So you can see that President Biden, and before that, Vice President Biden, has been involved in Ukrainian affairs for a long time. Now, let me come at this whole issue from a somewhat different but somewhat related perspective. There is no question that there is profound Russophobia in this country. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. Uh, it, it is uh, hard to say anything positive about the Russians or about Vladimir Putin in the present environment. And indeed, I think this has been the case for many years now. The question you have to ask yourself is, what's driving that? You know, wh yeah. Where is this coming from? I think a great deal of it has to do with the fact that many people, especially in the Democratic Party, believe that the reason that Hillary Clinton lost the election in 2016 and Donald Trump won the election is because the Russians interfered in the election and they threw the election for Trump. Had the Russians not interfered, so the argument goes, Hillary Clinton would have won. People in the Democratic Party are almost to a person unwilling to accept the argument that Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate and that Trump beat her. Uh, there is, in my opinion, hardly any evidence that the Russians were responsible for Trump's election. Uh, but nevertheless, the Democratic Party is filled with people who believe that, and many Americans believe that the Russians did uh, interfere in the election. Whether they're glad that Hillary lost or won is, is irrelevant. Uh, and uh, so that fuels the Russophobia. Uh, the other thing that I think fuels the Russophobia is the fact that Putin uh, is deeply opposed to LGBTQ issues. Uh, he's uh, quite hard line on that. And well, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I'm surprised to hear that that could be a driver uh, of this larger uh, uh, foreign policy dynamic. Well, it, it makes him a hated person. I mean, people loathe Vladimir Putin. And in effect, they loathe Russia. And, and the question you want to ask yourself is, what's driving this Russophobia? Why is it so easy to make the argument that Vladimir Putin is the devil incarnate? And the argument I'm making to you is a lot of it has to do with what happened in the 2016 election. And a lot of it has to do with uh, LBGTQ issues. OK, well, I'm, I'm provoked to ask you this then. Uh, there are uh, orders of the right of a kind of uh, nationalist, uh, Christian, even Christian nationalists that would look to orthodox uh, uh, Russian uh, religious uh, culture as a counterpoint to the, quote, postmodern uh, overtaking of the West by all of the various isms and, and all of the identity stuff and the transgender stuff and the whatnot, whatnot. Um, how, no, don't know how, quite how to put it. Is, isn't there 
uh, a necessity to take a stand on on something like that. And uh, are the ones who are afraid of the Christian right in America uh, not right to see and, and and who want to see a certain human rights mentality uh, become a global cultural reality, uh, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I don't want to take a stand myself, but I, I want to say I, I can see I, I, I can see both sides. I mean, when Tucker Carlson goes to Poland or Hungary or something like that, I mean, it, it, a lot of people are uncomfortable with this kind of uh, flirting with these these forces. So um, anyway, have, have I said enough for you to, to be able to respond on this theme? Well, there's no question that one can have a particular set of views uh, on, let's say, gay rights and think that, you know, gay marriage is definitely acceptable. Gay should be treated equally and so forth and so on. You can have very liberal views on these issues, uh, and I would put myself in that category. Uh, but then the question is, how do you deal with other countries where they have different views? Um, I mean, here in the United States, uh, we firmly believe, quite correctly, that women should be treated the same as men. Um, but what if you have another society where uh, men believe, or people in the society believe that men are different than women and women should be treated as subordinate to men. Uh, and this like is- Like Iran. Yeah, or Afghanistan. And this is hardwired into the culture, right? Uh, how do you deal with that issue? Uh, now, liberalism, at its core, is all about tolerance. And why is liberalism all about tolerance? Because liberalism understands, or liberalism is predicated on the assumption that there's no agreement on what comprises the good life. And different individuals and different societies are going to have different views on what comprises the good life. And if people in a country like Iran or people in a country like Afghanistan want a culture uh, where men dominate women or women are subordinated to men, uh, shouldn't we, as good liberals, just tolerate that? Shouldn't we accept the fact that women and men uh, have uh, a relationship between women and men? Uh, depends on the particular society's views. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is simply saying that the way the Ukraine, uh, the way the uh, Iranians and Afghani's think about male-female relations is fundamentally wrong, and we're going to go in there and change that. That's uh, not a particularly liberal view if you think about what liberalism is all about. But then again, one could argue liberalism is all about equal rights. And uh, uh, we therefore have a moral responsibility to go in and change uh, the culture in countries like Iran and Afghanistan. And where you stand on that um, issue, you know, 
how you think about liberalism affects how you think about American policy around the world. I tend to believe that the United States should stay out of the business uh, of how other countries run their politics and what their cultural life looks like. Uh, I'm willing to intervene in countries if one side is committing genocide against the other side. Uh, I would have intervened in Rwanda in the early 1990s. But otherwise, my basic view is let the Afghanis and let the Iranians organize their culture and organize their politics the way they want to. But most Americans don't feel that way. It's certainly true of people on the liberal side or the left-hand side of the political spectrum in this country. I think people on the right-hand side of the political spectrum are more inclined to intervene uh, to uh, do social engineering than people uh, on the right-hand side. You mean people on the left are more inclined to intervene than people on the right? Yes. Yeah. I, I think, well, I, I mean, I'm reducing this to a kind of sim simple equation. I mean, we're, because the, it's a dilemma of some kind here, a tragic dilemma. We're, we're um, uh, in this, have pushed Ukraine into this, uh, I'm paraphrasing you, disastrous conflict, which has led to the country's destruction. Uh, not yet fully realized, but this war of attrition is only going to have one kind of outcome. And, and we've done this for reasons that in advance could have been anticipated. Uh, and one of the reasons that we've done it and have not tolerated a kind of robust deliberation within our own ranks that would have made the points that you're making more of a mainstream uh, counter narrative to the narrative that has prevailed uh, is because of Russophobia and a hatred of Putin, which has to do with cultural politics. Um, and we're, we're at risk of a, of a potential, uh, you know, escalated uh, a global conflict between these powers that could be uh, costly beyond any imagining. Um, and there's something that seems quite irrational about that, or maybe it's the collective uh, action problem and it, it somehow every component is a rational actor, but the game is, is uh, leading to some kind of dis disastrous outcome. But anyway, it gives me the creeps. Well, my point was not that uh, the cause of this war was simply the Russophobia in the United States. My argument is there is acute Russophobia in the United States. And I was explaining to you why I think there is acute Russophobia. And I was pointing out that it had to do uh, with uh, the 2016 election and identity politics and how you think about those things. Uh, but more importantly, I think that what caused this war, and I'm moving beyond the Russophobia here, what caused this war was the desire to make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's border. We had been expanding NATO since 1999. The first tranche was in 99. That's when Poland, Hungary, uh, and the Czech Republic came in. And then there was another big tranche of expansion in 2004. This is when Romania, uh, Bulgaria, the Baltic states, uh, Slovenia, and so forth and so on came in to NATO. And then in 2008, we decided that Ukraine and Georgia would come into NATO. So this that there was this inexorable expansion of NATO that really started under the Clinton administration 
and was like a snowball rolling down a hill that is principally responsible for the crisis uh, that broke out in 2014 and the war that broke out in 2022. Uh, so it's not so much domestic politics inside the United States that caused this, uh, caused this crisis and then the war. But I would think there's no question that uh, it's made it E, the, the, the domestic politics involving Russia inside the United States made it easier to sell the war. The Russophobia allows uh, the administration and the foreign policy establishment uh, to sell the war. Is Putin's uh, uh, situation in Russia stably secure in, in light of the war? Is, is he in the, you know, in the catbird seat? Well, his best we could tell, I think the answer is yes. Uh, there was no question that before the war, uh, his position was secure. Nobody was arguing before the war broke out in uh, early 2022 that uh, Putin might be unseated or overthrown. Then the war broke out, and by late 2022, and even in early 23, people were beginning to think that uh, he may be in trouble, that the war was not going well for the Russians. And then we had uh, earlier this year the whole affair with Prigozhin, where it looked like Prigozhin was attempting a coup d'etat. It looked like he was trying to overthrow Putin. Uh, and at that point in time, lots of people thought that Putin might be toast. And of course, Lots of people wanted to believe that Putin was on the verge of being overthrown because they thought he was principally responsible for the war. And if we could get rid of Putin, whoever replaced him would negotiate a settlement. I believe this was a pipe dream, but nevertheless, that was the thought at the time. Regardless, the Prigozhin affair is over with. Prigozhin is dead. The Wagner group has been neutralized. And the Russians now appear to be doing much better on the battlefield than they were a year ago. And if you look at where this war is headed, it looks like the Russians are in good shape, as I argued before. So I think one can argue, Glenn, that if you look at Putin's position now, he is in better shape for sure than he was earlier this year during the Prigozhin affair. And he is in at least as good shape as he was in before the war started. So from the outside, it does not look like there is any serious possibility that he's gonna be overthrown. But again, I do wanna emphasize that if he is overthrown, uh, he's likely to be replaced by someone who is as hawkish or more hawkish uh, than Putin. You want to understand that there has been a lot of criticism of Putin since the war started. But the criticism has been mainly focused on the fact that he has not, he has not waged the war vigorously enough for the tastes of many Russian commentators. They think that this war uh, is one where Putin should unleash the dog. He should really uh, uh, go full bore uh, against Ukraine and not fight what is something of a limited war. I mean, here in the West, there's a tendency to portray uh, 
Vladimir Putin is someone who is launching an unlimited war against Ukraine. He's pulling out all stops. He's murdering huge numbers of civilians. He's right. fully mobilized the Russian military and so forth and so on. That's simply not true. Uh, it's actually quite, uh, it's quite interesting how restrained Putin has been in terms of waging this war. This is not to say it's not a brutal war. It is a brutal war, but it could be a much more brutal war. And there are quite a few Russian commentators who want him to do more against the Ukrainians, who want him to be tougher on Ukraine. So it is possible, one could even argue likely, that if he were overthrown, removed from power, that whoever replaced him uh, would be even more ruthless. Okay, I'm going to let you go. I appreciate your time. I, I just want to close by asking you about the election that's coming up, our presidential election that's in the works. Trump, a likely nominee for the Republicans and uh, uh, this issue of, about the conflict. How, how do you see it playing out? Um, do you, you know, what role do you see that uh, the uh, Ukraine war issue is going to play in the, in the dynamics of the upcoming election? Well, Trump likes to argue that if he were elected, he would end the war right away. Uh, Trump likes to brag that, you know, he could have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with Vladimir Putin. The two of them could uh, put an end to this war and uh, the Ukrainians would live happily ever after and we would as well. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen uh, if Trump gets elected or reelected, and I don't think that's likely anyway. But if he does get reelected, uh, he's not going to be able to shut the war down. You want to remember that when Barack Obama got elected and when Donald Trump got elected, uh, both of them ran on the platform that they were going to change American foreign policy. As you well remember, Barack Obama opposed the Iraq war. Uh, and he believed that these forever wars made no sense, and he wanted to put an end to them and not start any more of them. And he wanted to alter American foreign policy in important ways. Uh, and Donald Trump, when he ran in 2016, he ran against liberal hegemony, which was the prevailing foreign policy at the time. When he ran for president, Donald Trump, he had a radical foreign policy prescription. Uh, for what he would do if he got elected. Well, in the case of Obama and in the case of Donald Trump, the blob beat them back in both instances. Uh, Obama admitted as much in an interview to Jeffrey Goldberg when he was leaving office after eight years. Uh, he had had very little impact in terms of changing basic American foreign policy. And the same thing is true with Trump. The problem that Obama faced and the problem that Trump faced is that when they looked around in the foreign policy establishment for advisors who shared their views, they could find hardly anybody. So both of them ended up appointing all sorts of key advisors who were part of the blob or part of the foreign policy establishment and shared the views that both Obama and Trump were running against. So what I'm saying here is Trump last time was defeated by the foreign policy establishment. And I believe if Trump is elected this time, 
he will be defeated by the foreign policy establishment. That it will be impossible for him to jump in bed with Vladimir Putin and work out a deal. To take this one step further, there is no deal to be worked out. It's just very important to understand that. Uh, there is no way that the West can back off from its security relationship with Ukraine. We cannot completely sever our security relationship with Ukraine. We might be able to say, we're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO. We're not going to say at the same time that we will sever completely the security relationship with Ukraine, and we will allow Ukraine to become a neutral state that has no security guarantee from the West. We will not let that happen. Whether Donald Why not, John? Why not? Because we're too deeply invested at this point in time. Too many people are completely committed to Ukraine's security. You've Donald heard of the Mark, sunk cost fallacy, right? It's the sunk cost fallacy, yeah. But that's only one problem, Glenn. And by the way, just to be perfectly clear here, the Russians insist on Ukrainian neutrality. Again, that gets back to what causes the war. They insist on a completely neutral Ukraine, and I'm saying we won't accept that. But that's only one issue. As you know, the Russians have already annexed Crimea, and they have annexed, they have formally annexed four oblasts in the eastern and southern parts of Ukraine. The Russians have made it unequivocally clear that they're not giving that territory back. And I find it hard to imagine, impossible to imagine they would give that territory back. The Ukrainians, for completely understandable reasons, want that territory back. They want Crimea back, and they certainly want those four oblasts back. But the Russians say you can't have them back. So how do you square that circle? What's the deal on territory that's workable? What's the deal that Donald Trump is going to work out? And what's the deal that Donald Trump is going to work out on the neutrality issue? I don't see it. Now, you could say that Trump is an independent variable. He'll see that these two issues are the key issues and that he has to accommodate the Russians on both of them. And he'll go and do that all by himself. I don't think that's the way American politics works. I don't think he could possibly get away with that. So my, my view is if, uh, if Donald Trump wins, uh, then uh, we'll have a policy that's not much different than the one that will obtain if Joe Biden or some Democrat uh, gets elected instead of Trump. Uh, you know, I've often said that if you look at the Republican Party's foreign policy and the Democratic Party's foreign policy, it's basically Tweedledee and Tweedledum. It's just not a whole heck of a lot of difference between the two. Uh, and I just don't see that changing anytime soon. It may be the case that the Republicans um, uh, who have this slice of leaders who would like to focus on China and get out of Ukraine uh, grow in numbers. The people who have that view inside the Republican Party grow in numbers. Uh, and, and we eventually get a split between 
the Republican Party and the Democratic Party on Ukraine. The Ukrainian, I mean, the Democrats want to stay the course in Ukraine, and the Republicans basically uh, want to greatly limit our commitment to Ukraine and focus on China. There are Republicans who make that argument. And maybe they'll grow in number, and the Republicans and the Democrats will no longer be Tweedledee and Tweedledum, uh, and I'll be proved wrong. But uh, I don't think that will be the case. I, I think we, Glenn, are joined at the hip with Ukraine for the foreseeable future. And this gets back, by the way, to your escalation question. This is what makes me so nervous about escalation. The sunk costs argument. We are so deeply involved. And by the way, the Europeans are deeply involved because their great fear is that if we lose in Ukraine, that will be a hammer blow to NATO. NATO will be badly damaged. And if there's one thing the, Euro the Europeans do not want, it's a badly damaged Ukraine. So the, so the West Europe, so the Europeans and- a badly, a badly damaged NATO. A badly damaged NATO, yeah, yeah. Badly damaged NATO, right? That, that's something that the, the Europeans do not want because NATO is their security blanket. NATO means the American presence in Europe means the American pacifier, and they desperately want that. Uh, so uh, uh, so I, I think when you talk about where we're headed in Ukraine, it, it's hard to see us breaking off relations with Ukraine, while at the same time, it's hard to see Ukraine uh, prevailing on the battlefield, and it's much easier to see Ukraine losing on the battlefield, which then raises the question, what do we do in the event that happens? Well, uh, it's been a, a sobering and instructive hour of conversation, uh, John, and I really uh, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. This is Glenn Lowry signing off, uh, Glenn Lowry Brown University and the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, which sponsors The Glenn Show. And my guest this week has been John Mearsheimer, professor of politics at the University of Chicago. Thanks, John. You're welcome, Glenn. It was my pleasure.